Donald Trump can launch a nuclear weapon anytime he wants, and no one can stop him. North Korea's leader Kim Jong Un and U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson have been engaging in mutual nuclear saber rattling, and suddenly everyone has become painfully aware of the existence of almost fifteen thousand nuclear warheads in the world. So when the U.S. talks about nukes in space, and the Pentagon says. Star Wars or this weapons in space program will be the largest industrial project in the history of the country. And one of the industry newspapers said, "We've got to come up with a dedicated funding source to pay for all of this." And we have. It's the entitlement programs: Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Well, when you hear information like that, you know that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we interview Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space on so many subjects: the recent Tillerson Kim Jong Un nuclear saber rattling, Trump's nuclear position last we checked, and the upcoming conference: Pivot Towards War, U.S. Missile Defense and the Weaponization of Space. Ever wonder where that Pentagon budget is going? You'll find out that and much more with someone who is a genuine expert on nukes in space. Plus, we will have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. The duck and cover report on the latest reportable problems at U.S. nuclear reactors. Plus, news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than in all of the United States Congress this week or any other, red, blue, or any color in between. All of this will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March twenty-first, twenty seventeen, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting with the big U.S. international story, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson ruled out opening any negotiation with North Korea to freeze its nuclear and missile programs. This was said on Friday, March seventeenth. Tillerson said for the first time that the Trump administration might be forced to take preemptive action, quote, if they elevate the threat of their nuclear weapons program, end quote, to an unacceptable level. In response, North Korean leader Kim Jong Un threatened to nuke quote the bases of aggression and provocation to ashes, end quote, if we so much as fire a bullet at them. Much more on this during this week's featured interview. In New York, 
Senator Chuck Schumer says that proposed Trump administration cuts to Coast Guard and other vital security forces could spell real trouble for security at the Indian Point nuclear power plants. Quote, the Coast Guard plays a vital role protecting Indian Point against potential terror attacks, so any cuts, especially the large and unwarranted ones now being proposed by this administration, undermine our safety and should be rejected. When Texans collide, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing former Texas Governor Rick Perry, who's now our Energy Secretary, to force a decision on a long-term plan for storing the nation's radioactive waste. This breaks down to a pissing contest between which site is more acceptable for nuclear waste, Yucca Mountain in Nevada or waste control specialists in West Texas, neither one of which is acceptable. Take 20 paces and draw, partner. In Pennsylvania, renewed interest in a report by epidemiologist Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health documenting an alarming increase of cancers around the Limerick nuclear plant, which is northwest of Philadelphia and only 82 miles east of Three Mile Island. From 2011 to 2014, Thyroid cancers rose 97% in Montgomery County, which is home to the nuclear reactor, compared to 9% for the rest of Pennsylvania. Iodine-131 causes thyroid cancer, and another study showed strontium-90 found in local baby teeth. The only two sources that produce these radioactive man-made chemicals are atomic bomb explosions and nuclear power plants, and there has been no word of an atomic bomb explosion in Pennsylvania. Let's find out what's gone wrong with those reactors this week with the duck (laughs) and cover report. At Point Beach in Washington on March 20th, an unusual event, which is very usual with nuclear reactors, was declared for fire alarm in the containment due to his smoke detector alarm going off. Turns out there was a suspected defect in the fire alarm and that the exact same model was supplied to 44 other nuclear reactor locations. <coughs> Watts Bar in Tennessee on March 20th had a manual reactor trip. <coughs> and Nine Mile Point in New York, also on March 20th, had a manual scram due to pressure oscillations. <coughs> and this breaking story. Inspection has revealed 11 deficiencies at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, located at the base of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. State legislators representing the region have called upon the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on Tuesday today to stop the refueling of Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station's reactor, which is planned for this spring, and instead order the plant to begin shutting down. We'll have more on this story next week. Over to Japan, where the atomic power establishment is in shock following the court ruling on Friday that found the state and the operator of the Fukushima nuclear plant liable for failing to take preventive measures against the tsunami that crippled the facility. Judges ruled that Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, and the Japanese government were aware of the earthquake and tsunami risks to the Fukushima Daiichi plant prior to the 2011 triple reactor meltdown, but failed to take preventive measures. The court ordered the government and TEPCO to pay damages totaling 38 million yen, or about $335,000, to 62 residents, who were forced to evacuate. This breaks down to an average of $5,400 per person. 
The decision could influence dozens of similar lawsuits filed by close to 12,000 evacuated residents now living across the country. The heads of the Soma Futaba Fishing Cooperative has approved the start of experimental fishing operations only 10 to 20 kilometers from the meltdown-hit Fukushima power plant, which currently has close to 1 million tons of radioactive water in storage on site that has been filtered to remove just some of the radioactive elements. Shunichi Tanaka, chairman of Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority, has said there is no solution to the problem of the tritium water other than ocean release, noting that the concentration is within quote-unquote legal limits, a semantic ploy that has no relation to the actual danger posed by the radioactive water. It's no accident that last Friday, South Korea expanded its ban on Japanese fishery products over concerns of radioactive contamination and now totally bans all fishery products from eight Japanese prefectures in the northeast surrounding Fukushima. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Representatives from the organizers of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics said on Friday, March 17, that the 30,000-seat Azuma baseball stadium in Fukushima Prefecture would be used as an additional venue for baseball and softball events during the 2020 Games. Elite athletes and 30,000 tourists in a radiation zone. Whee! Here's what really gets me. Officials said that the location of the events is hoped to ensure the plight of the people of Fukushima remains in the international spotlight. No, what they want in the spotlight is the cover-up of the plight of the people of Fukushima. They say they want to give hope to and encourage the people who live in the disaster-hit prefecture. Actually, the majority of those people would prefer to not be forced to move back into the disaster-hit prefecture and would rather have some money to relocate and a whole bunch of zeolite to maybe take some of the radiation out of their bodies. But no, everybody's pretending. And that's why, International Olympic Committee, once again, you are this week's... Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Now the European report with Nuclear Hot Seat Special Correspondent Sean McGee. first story I'll be reporting on is from Belarus. Associated Press reporter who covered the story about the strontium-90 that was found in milk at ten times over the level. The actual test was done by the government laboratory. A lower court found that he was guilty without looking at any of the evidence and it was taken to a higher court. And we reported on this some time ago. Well, on Thursday, the higher court found on behalf of the actual milk manufacturers who had denied all evidence and, quote, they said it does not correspond with reality concerning the laboratory test results. So this is the higher courts in Belarus ignoring scientific evidence from their own government laboratories to support the business and also to hide the actual contamination in milk that is found from Belarus that exports and sells the milk to surrounding countries. We can see that this is actually the sort of thing that's happening in the UK with the British Nuclear Test Veterans case where Chris Busby presented evidence but the evidence was ignored. The court found in favour of the Ministry of Defence and therefore the British Nuclear Test Veterans 
were denied their due compensation. And staying in the Belarus-Ukraine-Russian area concerning Chernobyl Children's International is celebrating from the United Nations World Down Syndrome Day. And of course we saw a spike in Down Syndrome after the Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986 and in 1987 and a further spike in some European countries in 1987 as well. Coming to the UK, Toshiba's bankruptcy means that the UK government will not be able to meet its 2030 plans to put nuclear power plants into the grid to do with Moorside. So according to a report in The Telegraph, it means that a major investment in other technologies will be needed to bridge the gap. This may force the issue with renewables. Christopher Busby is getting results from his re-justification of Euratom. He's had some feedback from Ireland. It looks like he'll be getting a feedback from Sweden and he has four or five other European countries on board. So there is a lot of pressure to do with the re-justification and the challenge of new evidence of health effects in recent years, which may upset the apple cart in the nuclear industry in Europe. And finally, we're looking at France, where there was a court case to do with Flamanville in France, which was the reactor that had the explosion last month. And it turns out that they have been using workers who haven't had the proper documentation on the site building the new reactor there. And when we come to Norway, we reported on the iodine release and the NRPA have put out a statement because of the wide amount of coverage that it had on the YouTube and various social media platforms. They have said that the iodine is not all the other iodine that has come out after October, had nothing to do with them, but they didn't specifically answer the issue with the mid-February release that we reported on last week. And CREERAD, who are an independent radiation testing laboratory, have been asking some questions to do with the Holden release about how the testing was done, and they have actually asked for samples from the local area just to double-check to see if there was any iodine release in mid-February. And we'll get back to you on any new information on that. That was Nuclear Hot Seat's European correspondent, Sean McGee, based in Ireland. Before we get to today's featured interview, a reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is listener-supported and relies on your donations to keep operating. Gosh, don't you get tired of hearing that? But it's the truth. So if you can help us meet our goals, please do what you can. Any amount is welcome. I'm particularly fond of the Starbucks donation of the equivalent of what you'd pay to take me out for a cup of coffee. It's a simple way to get started. And if you can, do it now. Don't wait. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, And know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated. And for that, you have my gratitude. Bruce Gagnon is the Secretary Coordinator of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. He was previously our guest on Nuclear Hot Seat number 276, October 4th of 2016. And... His information, the depth and the complexity of it, and his ability to explain exactly what's going on with nukes in space is astonishing. This time, Bruce talks with us about the dangers of nuclear deterrence, how the Pentagon plans to pay for Star Wars and the rest of the planned nuclearization of space, and gives us a glimpse at the upcoming 25th anniversary conference of Global Network entitled Pivot Towards War. 
U.S. Missile Defense, and the Weaponization of Space. We spoke on Monday, March 20, 2017. Bruce Gagnon, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Great to be with you again. We're going to talk a bit about a conference that you have coming up, but first let's take a look as to what's happening from a nuclear perspective in the world right now, and things have really been heating up. First of all, what is the current status of the U.S. nuclear arsenal? Well, it's growing and and it's being modernized. Uh, When Barack Obama was president, he passed through a uh, bill to come up with about $100 billion to remodel, remodernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal and also to begin to miniaturize some of the nukes so that they could be used in limited strikes, battlefield strikes. And so today in Europe, where the United States has deployed many of these battlefield nuclear weapons at NATO bases throughout Europe, the United States is now moving these newer generations of nuclear weapons there. And so this is the reality we're seeing today. And then at the same time, of course, you know, the U.S. lectures other countries like Iran or North Korea or even China and Russia, telling them they shouldn't have nuclear weapons, that they're evil weapons of mass destruction. But, of course, the United States continues with our thousands that we have. And at the same time, the U.S. also lectures, particularly Iran and North Korea, telling them they are not allowed to even test missiles, something that the U.S. does daily. We've got so many missiles deployed around the world, and we test them all the time. Uh, In fact, I just heard just a couple days ago that this very controversial THAAD system It stands for Theater High Altitude Aerial Defense. It's a so-called missile defense system that the U.S. is now actually at this moment putting into South Korea against tremendous opposition by the South Korean people. But this system is also going into Kodiak Island, Alaska, if you can believe it, on one of the most pristine places on that island uh, where people had a beautiful beach, a nature preserve. Well, it's all being bulldozed and gravels being put there as a testing place for these THAAD missile defense systems. So, again, we lecture other countries about doing it, but we're we're on steroids when it comes to us putting this stuff all over the place. And so, for me, this is the height of hypocrisy. The U.S. position, the U.S. continued manufacturing, testing, and deployments of all kinds of missiles around the world, not just in our own country, like North Korea or Iran might be doing, testing missiles. Iran has no nuclear weapons, by the way. North Korea has a few. But the reality is the U.S. position is totally hypocritical. It seems to be an old case of do what I say, don't do what I do. Explain what the nuclear triad is and how our government has envisioned it working. Well, the triad is the three-legged stool. U.S. has nuclear missiles deployed in airplanes so they can be launched from or dropped from airplanes. We have them in the ocean in submarines, the Trident nuclear submarines, for example, that are based in Kings Bay, Georgia, on the Florida-Georgia border, and also in Bangor, Washington, just near Seattle. And then thirdly, 
ground-based nuclear weapons that can be launched from artillery shells or other such things, and also ones that are underground, like the Minuteman silos out in the West in Colorado and North Dakota and places like that. So land-based, sea-based, and air-based are the U.S. triad. How many nuclear weapons do we have, and how does that compare to other nations' arsenals of nuclear weapons? It's in the range of around 7,000, I believe. Uh, Russia has maybe a couple more, a few more. China has just in the hundreds, and then other countries have them as well, as you know, from Israel to England to France to Pakistan. Why this emphasis on the need for missile defense from the United States, and how feasible is that? Missile defense is the shield It used to be illegal under a treaty called the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the ABM Treaty, that the U.S. had with Russia, and before that, the former Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union fell, that treaty carried over to Russia. And the idea of the treaty was that as long as you had this thing called MAD, mutually assured destruction, both sides had nuclear weapons, you could blow each other up, there could be no winner. So that's the sword, right? Nuclear weapons are the sword. But when you introduce the shield, which the ABM treaty said was illegal because they would give one side an advantage because after you thrust the sword into Russia or China, for example, if you had missile defense, the shield, you could stab them with your sword. And then when they tried to retaliate, you could take out their retaliation with your shield. So ABM Treaty said that's illegal, it's destabilizing, and it would give one side the advantage, make them think they could win a nuclear war. So that was good. That was a good thing, that treaty. In 2001, when George W. Bush became president, he pulled the U.S. out of the ABM Treaty. And since that time, so-called missile defense systems, the SHIELD, have been moving forward on steroids. And they are now being deployed on ground-based launchers all over the world, encircling particularly Russia and China, and also on Navy Aegis destroyers, onboard interceptor missiles, onboard these destroyer warships that are made in my hometown here in Bath, Maine. So, again, these ships, too, are being deployed just off the coast of Russia and China. So the U.S. is creating this encirclement with so-called missile defense. It's really a part of the offensive first-strike attack system. And each year at the U.S. Space Command, they have a computer war game called the Red Team versus the Blue Team, where the U.S. practices a first-strike attack on Russia and China. And in that first strike, we hit them hard, try to take out their underground nuclear silos, their nuclear weapons inside of their submarines, and then they try to fire, after our first strike, they try to fire their retaliatory capability. It is then that the so-called shield missile defense is used to try to pick off that uh, return strike by Russia and China, giving the U.S. a supposed first strike attack advantage and a successful first strike attack. Again, this begins to create in the minds of the Pentagon the thought that we can actually win a nuclear war. In the old days of mad, mutually assured destruction, there could be no winner. But now with missile defense at the Pentagon, they say 
we can win a nuclear war. And so there are people in Washington, inside of the Pentagon, in the White House, in the Congress, that now believe that the United States has the ability to win a nuclear war because of missile defense. Now, there are different varieties of missile defense systems. Essentially, what the Pentagon is doing, they're creating coverage from launch till the time that the offending missile coming from another country hits you. So you want to try to hit it in the boost phase, in the mid-course phase, that's out in deep space, and then in what they call the terminal phase as it approaches land. So missile defense systems are being developed to operate in each of these phases. Some of them have better testing results than others. For example, the worst of them is called the ground-based missile defense system. Now, these are U.S. systems I'm talking about. Their job is to try to hit a bullet way up in deep space when the incoming missile is coming in at 15,000 miles an hour. That particular U.S. missile defense program has had zero success whatsoever in their testing. But where they've had success at the missile defense agency of the Pentagon is trying to hit rockets soon after they're launched. When they're slow, they're easily identified because rocket flames are coming out of the back of them. They haven't got up in the orbit yet. So to try to hit them in boost phase is easier. Or to hit them in terminal phase as they're coming out of the atmosphere, heading toward the final target. That's what this THAAD system that the U.S. is now deploying in Korea is all about, trying to hit something as it's falling in, the, in its last stage, its terminal phase. Those systems have also had more success in the testing. So it depends on the system you're talking about. Now, some people say, oh, well, none of it works. None of missile defense works because they confuse all the missile defense systems with the one that has its most difficult job, which is the one to hit a bullet with a bullet in deep space at 15,000 miles per hour. This begs the central question, which is, is it even feasible that a nuclear war is winnable, let alone survivable? No, the answer is absolutely no. It's insane. The whole thought of it is insane. It's crazy. It's an enormous, enormous welfare program for the military-industrial complex. Hundreds of billions of dollars we're talking about going into all this stuff. Because you have to consider, it's not just the missile defense interceptors that we're paying for. You have to pay for the satellites that control them. Because the satellites are used, they're really the triggers, if you think about it. Uh, they're used to direct things to their targets. And then you have to have ground stations all over the planet. They're called downlink stations, radars that are looking at the sky and sending signals via satellite back to the command centers in places like Colorado and other places. So this whole system tied together is enormously expensive. You know, you launch a $100 million satellite on a $100 million rocket, and now and then they blow up and you have to start all over again. Well, the weapons corporations, the aerospace industry, as we call it, just loves it. It's massive profit for them. And all over the country, we're seeing a literal explosion of these corporations that are getting rich off building all of these space technology systems that today control everything the Pentagon does. 
it's a little breathtaking to consider the enormity of what's already in place with this. Now we have someone in the White House who has a very, what seems to be, aggressive nuclear stance. What can you tell us, or what has perhaps shifted or changed since Trump has taken over the office of president? Well, you know, it's still a little early to tell because Trump is really all over the map. One day he says he wants to have good relationships with Russia, and I think that's a good statement. Uh, You know, we should appreciate that any president would want to have good relationships with another nuclear power. But at the same time, he's appointed people like General Mattis, uh, Secretary of War, who really has a very terrible record as a war criminal from the Iraq War, where he was in charge of the Fallujah operation, the city of the size of Cincinnati that was totally demolished, and that depleted uranium weapons were used that left a nuclear wasteland for the Iraqi people to suffer from in the many years ahead. So this is a guy that's our Secretary of War today. So it's, it's still difficult to know exactly how far Trump is going to go with all this stuff. But again, we've got to see that there's real continuity between Republicans and Democrats on this stuff. You know, it was Ronald Reagan that first came out with Star Wars back in the 80s. He wanted to have an umbrella over the United States to protect us from other countries' nuclear weapons. Well, this was the first idea of missile defense, actually. And then Bill Clinton became president. One of the first things he did was to say he was shutting down Reagan's strategic defense initiative, SDI office, which was the Star Wars program. And some people in the peace movement cheered and even called me and said, Bruce, why are you still working on Star Wars? Clinton shut it down. But what they didn't know was the next day after he said he was shutting down SDI, Clinton moved the money from SDI into BIMDO, Ballistic Missile Defense Organization. And they continued doing the same work. And then George W. Bush became president, and he changed the name to MDA, Missile Defense Agency, and kept doing the same work. And then Obama became president, and he continued doing the same work, and in fact, began to really accelerate the deployments of missile defense systems. And so I anticipate that Donald Trump will pretty much continue the program like all the other Republicans and Democrats have, because He's a corporate stooge, just like all of the politicians in Washington today, no matter whether they're Republicans or Democrats. They all get contributions from the military-industrial complex. They get contributions from the unions that work at these military production places. And so whether you're a Republican or Democrat, I know here in the state of Maine, liberal, liberal Democrat congresswoman, is down at the, the shipyard here in Bath. Every time they have a christening, where they build a new destroyer, they give it the blessings of Jesus Christ, and they send it off with missile defense systems on board, and she's right behind the whole program. So it's a bipartisan operation. I don't think we'll see any real change in the end from Trump. Currently, 
and there was no way to know this when we booked this interview four weeks ago, but currently Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is on a tour of the Far East, and as regards some of his statements about nuclear, it's been very upsetting, not just to people who are following what he says here in the States, but also to Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, who just today word came that he said that if the United States so much as fires a bullet at them, that the country of North Korea will nuke, quote, the bases of aggression and provocation to ashes. And he was specifically talking about a nuclear strike for this. How much damage is Tillerson currently doing, and how unexpected or how realistic is this threat by Kim Jong-un? My opinion is it's a very defensive statement. They're afraid. The United States, at the same time that Tillerson and Mattis was recently also in Korea, at the same time that they're there, the United States and the South Korean government are having war games right on the North Korea border. At the same time, in the last week, the United States Pentagon announced that we were now considering a preemptive strike, a decapitation strike, which means cut off their head, decapitation, strike of North Korea in order to take out their leadership. Well, this is a first strike attack they're talking about. And so as the United States and South Korea move war games up to the North Korean border, does North Korea know that this time it's just practice, or do they think it's the real thing? And so they're afraid, all right? North Korea has not attacked South Korea. They have not. They have not fired any missiles into South Korea. They've not fired any nuclear weapons into South Korea. And they've been asking for a long time that what they really want is a peace treaty. Because since the Korean War between the United States and North Korea in the 1950s. Once that war ended, it never really ended. There was never a peace treaty signed. The United States is still legally at war with North Korea. And so North Korea always wonders, is this the time they're coming after me? So they have to you know, come out with all these statements to try to create fear in the hearts of people of South Korea in hopes that they will speak out against the U.S. and the South Korean government, a right-wing government currently, uh, that is doing these war games. So that's my perspective on it. And I think when you ask people like Bruce Cummings, a famous historian, a very great writer about uh, the Korean peninsula since the 1950s especially, this is generally the position he takes. Uh, yeah, sure, sometimes they sound a bit outlandish and everything else. It's true in North Korea. But I think they're acting out of total defensiveness and fear because they don't have the kind of army to go up against the United States, Japan, South Korea, and other allies in that region because you've you got to consider that NATO is now expanding into a global alliance. NATO has now moved into the Asia-Pacific. And the United States has now signed up Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, South Korea, and Japan as NATO partners, which is essentially the same thing as NATO members. So now if the United States attacks North Korea, it's going to be a NATO attack. And so North Korea knows they can't take on all that. So they have to try to 
use their voice, in a sense, to create fear and trepidation about attacking them. The group that you co-founded and work with, Global Network, tell us about how it got started and what the group's intentions are. The Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space was created in 1992 by the combined efforts of the Florida Coalition for Peace and Justice, where at that time I was working as coordinator, and a group in Colorado Springs called Citizens for Peace in Space, a local group. And that's where the Air Force Space Command is headquartered in Colorado Springs. And then a journalism professor by the name of Carl Grossman from Long Island, longtime anti-nuclear guy. And so basically the three of us, the Florida Coalition, the Colorado Group, and Carl Grossman, got together and said, this space thing is getting crazy. We were working on it in Florida because we were close to the Space Center. Colorado was working on it. And we were really the only two local groups in the country that were doing anything about space. All the way back to the 80s, we're talking 82, 83. That's when we all started working on this. So by 92, we saw that this thing was taken off like crazy. And we needed to build a larger constituency and a larger consciousness about what the United States was planning to do in space. One of the planning documents, for example, Vision for 2020 of the U.S. Space Command, says that the United States will control space, dominate space, and deny other countries the use of space. And in fact, in Colorado, on the headquarters building of the Space Command, they have their logo that reads Master of Space, and they wear that as a patch on their uniform as well. I like to call it Master of Disaster. So by 1992, we decided, all right, let's create this global network. And so that's what we did. And over the years, we had learned that as this whole space technology system was set up, the U.S. was building bases in places like England, Australia, Germany, Iceland, Norway, all over the place, downlink receiving stations, radars that talked to the satellites that made the whole space warfare technology system work. And so we learned that there were peace groups in those countries that were not happy having a U.S. Star Wars base in their community. And so they became the membership of the global network. And so today we have about 150 affiliated groups all over the world. And every year we have an annual meeting, what we call an annual space organizing conference, in a different place that is a different manifestation of this whole problem. And so in recent years, we've met in India, in Sweden, in Korea, in Japan, and this year we're meeting in Huntsville, Alabama. This is your 25th anniversary, and in choosing Huntsville, Alabama, what was the thinking behind that? Well, as it turns out, Huntsville, the Redstone Arsenal, as it's called, is the Pentagon's directorate office for the missile defense program that we've been already talking about. And we see this as one of the most aggressive and provocative parts of this whole space warfare program that is being uh, developed today, missile defense. So we want to shine a light on this. We want people to know more about it. We want to bring public attention to what's going on with missile defense. So what better place to go than rural, conservative, northern Alabama to Huntsville that is now called the Pentagon of the South 
because they receive about $7 billion a year in military-industrial complex money that is pumped into this place because they've become uh, one of the most vital research and development centers for the whole space warfare technology program. In looking at the list of speakers, it's quite impressive the range, the locations where they're coming from and the topics that are being covered. Give us a sense, first of all, of Colonel Ann Wright, who is your keynote speaker. Colonel Ann Wright is a member of Veterans for Peace, an organization that I belong to, and she's a retired U.S. Army colonel. After she retired from the Army, she became a diplomat inside the State Department in various countries she was assigned to around the world. And at the time of the U.S. shock and awe invasion of Iraq in 2003 by George W. Bush, she resigned from the government speaking out against this attack, preemptive, illegal attack on another country. And so since that time, she has been one of the most amazing peace activists in this country and around the world, going to all parts of the planet, speaking out. And we're really honored to have her as our keynote speaker at this conference. What are some of the other topics you're going to be covering? Well, we're going to begin with a presentation by our board chair, Dave Webb, who's also the chair of the largest peace group in England called Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. He will be doing a presentation that he's so good at where, with a PowerPoint, he shows the pictures and helps people understand all of the technologies that the United States has developed all over the world and where these things are being placed and how they all fit together. And he does it in a really non-technical kind of way so that it's much easier for people to begin to get a grasp of how the whole space warfare technology system fits together like a puzzle. And so he will be doing that. And following that, we'll have more discussion about the various programs that the United States is pushing forward, including missile defense, military satellites, drones, military space plane, the successor to the shuttle, NSA surveillance, and even mining the sky in the future. We have a professor from a college in uh, California who's a physics professor. She's coming to talk about a bill that Obama pushed through to allow corporations to go out and claim ownership of the planetary bodies, violating the Moon Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty of the United Nations, by the way, that said the celestial bodies are the province of all humankind. No individual, no corporation, no country can claim ownership. Obama pushed through a bill to allow these corporations to claim ownership of these planetary bodies. So in our first plenary panel, we'll be talking about all these things. And then followed, uh, we will be talking about the Asia-Pacific pivot, the U.S. deployment of missile defense into places like Guam, Korea, Japan, surrounding both Russia and China. Following that, we'll be getting reports from some of our leading people, Global Network board members and activists from places like India, Sweden, Sweden, by the way, that has in northern Sweden a massive U.S. space technology base there now in northern Sweden. Who would ever know? 
And so we'll be hearing about that. Also from uh, one of the key activists in England who's been working on these issues for a long time, a woman by the name of Lindis Percy. And then finally, our fourth panel that day will be strategies for converting the military-industrial complex. You know, until we deal with the job issue, we're never going to stop this massive U.S. war machine because so many communities have become addicted to military spending. Just in Huntsville, around 70,000 people are paid for by either the Army or the various weapons corporations that now employ people in that community. It's enormous. It's that way in so many communities. And in my community here in Bath, Maine, 5,000 people work at Bath Ironworks. It's the best industrial job in the state of Maine. And so communities have become dependent on, and our economy is literally addicted to military spending. So until we begin to talk about converting this military-industrial complex to help us deal with our real enemy today, which is climate change, we've got to change the way we live. We've got to reorient our society away from militarism. And, you know, it's interesting to know that the Pentagon has the largest carbon boot print on the planet. The Pentagon is the biggest polluter on the planet, the biggest contributor to climate change on the planet. And at the time of the Kyoto Protocols were signed, the U.S. refused to sign them unless the Pentagon was exempted from those protocols. And so until we deal with this carbon bootprint of the Pentagon, nothing changes. A study by the University of Massachusetts at Amherst Economics Department some years ago said that if we built rail systems, solar power, wind turbines, tidal power systems at a place like Bath Ironworks where I live or other military production facilities across the country, in every single instance, we would create more jobs than we get now because military spending is capital intensive. It eats up a lot of money and you get fewer jobs. While these other sustainable technology development is labor intensive. You get more jobs per billion dollars than you do from the military. So it's a win-win for labor unions, for environmental groups, for peace groups, for social justice groups. So this should be our demand, our collective unified demand, our transformative vision for this moment that we're in today where climate change is staring us in the face and kicking our butt as we see our weather begin to go insane all over the world. This is one thing that we will close the conference with, this kind of discussion. How do we make this demand come alive in these days? What is your vision coming out of this conference for the work and the coalescing of activist groups from all different perspectives to be able to put forth this vision and then push for its reality? How can that take place? What needs to be done? Well, you know, we're pretty excited about the kind of groups that have signed on as co-sponsors, and they're still coming in. Just an hour before you and I began this interview, I heard from another Veterans for Peace group in Jacksonville, Florida, that wanted to sponsor. And so now we have Veterans for Peace National, but we also have their chapters in places like Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and other places around the country. Maine, for example, Maine Veterans for Peace as well. Also, Green Party, several Green Party chapters in different states have co-sponsored. 
the North Alabama Peace Network. Believe it or not, there is actually a peace network in Alabama. And then groups from Korea, where this THAAD is being deployed. A woman, one of the leaders of one of the local groups opposing this THAAD deployment in a melon farming community that is going to be disrupted by the deployment of this THAAD missile defense system in their community. They've been in full-time resistance daily for the last five, six months. Uh, We're having a speaker come from there. So there's a lot of connections being made at this conference, new groups that uh, don't normally come to our conferences and don't normally sponsor them are involved. And uh, we're very excited about that. So it's all a matter of helping to get people's attention when there's so many things going on. There's so many issues. There's so many horrible situations happening that people can go work on. But we have a real challenge to even get the peace movement to begin to see and understand the dangers of moving the arms race into the heavens. And I think that this year we've kind of broken through more than we ever have before in the United States, getting the attention of a lot of the leading peace groups like the United National Anti-War Committee, UNAC, and uh, World Beyond War, as well as Veterans for Peace, uh, U.S. Peace Council, and others. Given how powerful and how challenging this work is and the number of years that you have been doing it, a personal question. How do you keep going? How do you keep from becoming depressed or just weighed down so much by this work that you would rather go out and do something else? Well, I do get depressed. Of course, I'm human. I, who wouldn't, you know, with all this staring us in the face? But years ago, I wrote about it on my blog just the other day. A Quaker friend, when I used to live in Florida, a Quaker friend one day told me, Bruce, you're too fixed on results. You don't have any power over things ultimately. Just do your best. Do the very best you can and let it go. And that was really kind of liberating for me. I didn't have to carry the world on my shoulders anymore. I could just do my bit, do the best I could, give it everything I have, and uh, live with it. And so that has really been really a tremendous growth for me. At the same time, I'm really a stubborn person. I don't give up easily. And I want to see the big picture. I want to really know it and understand what's going on. I sort of see it like a puzzle on the wall, and I'm always adding more pieces to the puzzle so that I can see it. And then I can also share that with other people and help them see what's going on. You know, the Pentagon has long been saying that Star Wars, or this weapons in space program, will be the largest industrial project in the history of the country. And some years ago, in one of the industry newspapers called Space News, they ran an editorial and they said, you know, we've got to be responsible corporate citizens. We've got to come up with a dedicated funding source to pay for all of this. And we have, they said. And we're now sending our lobbyists to Washington to secure that funding source. And what is it? They said it's the entitlement programs that officially in America are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and what's left of the welfare program after Bill Clinton got finished with it some years ago. So these are the programs that they've targeted at the aerospace industry to defund in order to pay for the largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth. I call it pyramids to the heavens. The weapons corporations are the new pharaohs of our time. 
and we're the slaves to build the pyramids for the pharaohs. Well, we've got to fight for social progress if we want to make sure that Star Wars doesn't successfully complete its mission to rule the earth on behalf of corporate globalization. That's a lot of motivation to keep a person going. It sure is, (laughs) especially when you're stubborn. Bruce, if someone wants to learn more about the conference, possibly sign on as a sponsor or get themselves to it in order to participate, what do they need to know and where can they go for more information? Just go to our website, spaceforpeace.org, and it's all there at the top of the website homepage. Everything's there, the links to the brochure. A young Veteran for Peace member that was in the Iraq and Afghanistan war, he's helping us organize this conference. He made a video today, and he put it online. It's now on the website that tells you the story about Huntsville, Alabama. It's fascinating. Even if you're not going to go to the conference, go to our website and watch this video, and you'll learn a lot. And we will, of course, link to that video and have it available on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. And Bruce Gagnon, all success to you and the others at that conference in two weeks. And for now, thank you so much for once again being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We all appreciate it. That was the amazingly articulate, peaceful warrior, Bruce Gagnon of Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. By the way, if you plan to check out the conference or anything at all on the group's website, be aware that the URL spaceforpeace.org has the number four in it. The number four is not spelled out. It's just a four. We'll also provide Global Network's link on our website so that you can leave public comments on FAD deployment in Guam. That will be under this week's episode, number 300. More about that in a moment. Activist shout-outs! Congrats to Kristen Iverson, author of the acclaimed book Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. She has been asked to speak at the International Conference of the Norwegian Peace Council on April 26th in Oslo, Norway. Kristen is soft-spoken and a powerhouse, and we wish her a safe journey and a strong landing. Speaking of Rocky Flats, Mazel Tov and Brava to the Boulder Valley School Board in Boulder, Colorado. It just voted to ban field trips to the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge, which is just a fancy name for the still radioactive site of the former nuclear weapons production facility. This is the kind of grassroots activism that makes a real statement, and that counts. Well done. And for those of you wanting to explore the ramifications of so-called limited nuclear war, two links for you up on the website. The first is to an article on what would happen if every nuclear weapon on Earth is launched simultaneously. What a blast! And one of my favorite sites, Nuke Map by Alex Wellerstein, which is a fun online game that anyone can play. You just put in your location, pick the size of the nuclear bomb explosion you want to see, make certain to click the deaths and casualties boxes, and then launch the program to see exactly what would happen if one of those limited nukes landed in your own backyard. Oodles of fun and no end to the nightmares. Perfect for Halloween.
And for you insomniacs, I will be appearing on Midnight in the Desert with Heather Wade, the old Art Bell radio show, on Thursday, March 23rd, for four hours, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to listen in if you can, especially the last hour, to see if I'm still functioning in the full upright position. Here's today's final thought. 300. That's the number of this episode on Nuclear Hot Seat, and we got there honestly. If you told me back in June of 2011 that I would still be producing this show every week, let alone hitting this number, I would have run screaming off the nearest cliff. But like they say in 12-step, one day at a time, one episode at a time, and here we are, more than five and a half years later, and I can't imagine my life without this show. I didn't get here alone. Lots of people helped and continue to help through leads, tips, email, donations, direct assistance in production, and general encouragement, as well as all those knowledgeable folks who agreed to talk with me on the record and guide my comments before I go on the record. To all of you, I'm not kidding when I say you've got my gratitude. It helps to not be alone with the awfulness of so much of this information, along with the realization that a lot of you actually get my sense of humor and laugh along with me. As the theme song says, the activists are linking, and sometimes we're laughing. As we launch into the next hundred episodes, or however far this goes, know that I'm looking to expand the reach of this show. I'm looking for community broadcast stations, online networking opportunities, and other digital ways to get Nuclear Hot Seat up and out as a trustworthy source for nuclear news, along with a hefty dose of attitude. And there are some nibbles starting to come in for speaking engagements, and if I can put together a tour, I'll be doing a bit of traveling in the coming months to carry the nuclear message, perhaps to a locale near you. If you can help with any of this, Send me an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. For now, just keep listening. Episode number 301, the Three Mile Island Anniversary Show, is just one week away. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 21st, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from spaceforpeace.org, indie100.com, New York Times, commondreams.org, miningawareness.wordpress.com, deunrenard.wordpress.com, and Hervé Courtois, the fox himself, dallasnews.com, the Potsdown Mercury, atimes.com, Bob Alvarez, washingtoninspector.org, independent.co.uk, theecologist.org, Sean McGee's European report was sourced from Le Monde, The Telegraph, MetroNews.ca, Chernobyl Children's International, The Guardian, Chris Busby, and Creerad. Then there's the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray, and a shout-out to the peaceful planet protectors and nuke resistors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, which you are invited to join, like, and share our posts with your loved ones. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. 
all rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And remember, if you can possibly send us a donation to support the work of Nuclear Hot Seat, we would love for you to do so. Just go to the website, click on that red button. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nobody wins a nuclear war. Now, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.